Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming in theaters, what's streaming and in theaters, I should say, and what's going on in the whole universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go. I'm one of your co-hosts. I love Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, theme parks, and pop culture. You can email me at aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. All right, Al John, I'm back in my Los Angeles Skull Rock studios. Yes. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Oh, doing excellent. Gear, gearing up for having the family over for Father's Day this weekend. That's it. It's yeah. big Father's Day weekend. And by the time our listeners hear this show, uh, it will be the day after Father's Day. Yes. And I, hope, I hope all the fathers listening had a great Father's Day. Yes, indeed. And also Juneteenth. So happy Juneteenth. And um, our company is observing Juneteenth on on that Monday. So I know that happens on Sunday. So Sunday's a a, a double doozy. You you get to celebrate Juneteenth as well as Father's Day. So uh, I hope everyone is being safe out there. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm excited because uh, we have a terrific guest on the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have former Imagineer and now industrial designer, Eddie Sato, who I have to tell you is one of the coolest guys I have met recently. And, you know, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but I I met him uh, for the first time about a month or so ago. And uh, I'm just fascinated by him, his history and what he does. Does, and I can't wait to get into that conversation now, John. He seems like the coolest guy. And the fact that you you met him over at the Hojo uh, for your stay last last month, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, no, it was really fantastic. So so stay tuned for that because we've got um, a great conversation coming up with Eddie Sato. Awesome. Hey, I'd like to also remind our listeners that we, you know, we talked about giving away a copy, the signed copy of the Claude Coates book. And I'm actually going to be extending that contest um, until the end of the month. So you've got some time for you to go ahead and register to win. Uh, we've got some awesome posts uh, going up on Instagram and Facebook over the over the weekend. Hope everyone takes advantage of it and likes our social media. Just it's a pinned post on our Facebook page. So go ahead and uh, share it with your friends. Anyone who's a Disney fan, of course, anyone who's just a fan of pop culture in general would absolutely love this, this Claude Coates book that's back in stock, Dave. It is back in stock. And you know something, I think this is going to become a habitual part of our show. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think that going forward every so often, we're going to do some kind of a giveaway. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's just our way of, uh, appreciating and giving something to our listeners. I love it. Absolutely. And, and we do love you guys and gals who are listening, everyone that's in our audience, we do appreciate it. So having, yes, Dave. 
Yeah, one thing I was going to add, I, I want to mention, uh, you know, we we always love getting notes from uh, our listeners. And uh, I got a wonderful uh, note from Scott about uh, last week's show oh. uh, and the fact that we, uh, uh, uh you know, followed his suggestion, you know, because Scott was the guy that sent the note in and said, Hey, you know, could you do, do some kind of tribute to Ron Miller? And, and we did it, you know, and Scott thoroughly enjoyed the show. And I just wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, He's down in orange County, California. He made that suggestion to us and uh, we followed through on it because we listen to our listeners. Yes. I love that. Don't we? Absolutely. We do. I think it's uh, amazing. And we love getting that email. We love getting those reviews. So please keep them coming, please. And uh, another thing that we also like to keep you uh, up about is uh, what we're watching and stuff. So uh, what, what were you able to see this week? Looks like you have a few things. Yeah, I do. You know, it, it was it was a travel week for me because I was in uh, in New York with the uh, Mobile Skull Rock Studios, and uh, I, I didn't have a chance to go to the movies this past week. But I did squeeze in a couple of city homicides that are playing on Freevee, the Australian. It's an Australian TV series, you know, crime drama. Uh, and by the way, something interesting: Margot Robbie who we all know uh, from uh, some of the DC properties, mm-hmm. right? Cause yes. she plays Harley Quinn. Yes. Uh, and uh, she made her, her first acting screen credit uh, professionally was in city homicide. Is that right? And, yeah. And I saw her and I saw her the episode she was in and I'm sitting there looking at this actress and I'm going, Hmm, she looks kind of familiar. And then my daughter goes, that's Margot Robbie. I said, no way. That's not Margot Robbie. And she goes, no, that is Margot Robbie. And oh. she looked it up and, and sure enough, uh, Margot Robbie's first professional screen credit was in city homicide, this Australian TV series. That's awesome. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of fun. I did have a chance to watch the season finale of Barry. Oh yeah, uh, on, H- cool. on HBO Max. That yes. was a that was a stunner. That was uh, amazing. I can't wait for to see how that resolves in the next season. Yes. Um I did watch the latest episode that dropped of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a terrific show. I just am thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, and I got a chance to see the trailer for The Old Man, which mm. stars Jeff Bridges. And, if, and, and it's on FX, but when, when it airs on FX, the next day it's going to air on Hulu. Yeah. So it dropped two episodes yesterday. Uh-huh. So I'm going to watch, uh, which is Thursday, by the yeah, way, yeah. Uh, last Thursday. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, I'm going to be watching them, uh, you know, uh, on Hulu. Uh, the trailer's fantastic. He plays he, he plays a sort of retired uh, undercover, you know, secret agent type uh, who uh, is found out like they find out where he is and all hell breaks loose. Uh, I like it. I like it a yeah. lot. No, that's cool. Well, for me, you know, I'm still up with this Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney Plus. <laughs> it's good. It's it's so good. And did you know that um, was it Andy Stanton uh, wrote this past episode from Pixar? 
I did not know that. Yes, yeah, Andrew uh, Andrew Stanton. Andrew Andrew Stanton. Yeah, wow. yeah. That, that's fantastic. Yeah, so um, he, yeah, and, he wrote it. And I noticed also you you're still watching Miss Marvel. I haven't had the chance to watch Miss Marvel. Uh, I'm gonna. I, I, it's how many episodes are up right now? I think on Disney Plus? I think two, maybe. Three. Yeah, maybe two episodes. Now, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try three. and see if I can catch up with that in the next week. Yes, Obi Wan. We have the um, penultimate episode. Uh, we just played the last uh, part of the series is next week, and it'll wrap up. It's it's really really good. This is effective use of flashbacks. By the way, I just love I love the storytelling that's here. Of course, Miss Marvel too is so charming, and uh, once again, the the whole high school drama of it all of a, a a girl growing into a woman, finding herself, finding her place in the world, which is always a great story to tell. And then also, um, I have been watching um, the Orville, of course, Orville as well as um there was another another series i had um uh star trek of course just watching so just really all the sci-fi you know comic book stuff i can i can slide into four hour slots <laughs> during the <Sure>. week <laughs> but it's getting there i'm hoping that i could finally get to see jurassic park um over the weekend so that's my goal is to try to see uh jurassic park um, and maybe Dune. I, I may have to stay up and watch Dune because I've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. So. Oh, you haven't seen Dune? No, I mean, oh, I mean it's been I in saw, my. I, I saw that on an IMAX screen. My yeah, friend. yeah, I know, I know. It was just one of those things where I just haven't been able to. I've been haven't been able to set the time aside, and um, Kristen has a very short attention span. <laughs> so I was just like, this movie might be a little much for her, but uh, we're working on it. But hey, so what are you watching out there? Let us know. Drop us an email. Give us your recommendations, and we'll read them in an upcoming episode. Skull Rock Podcast this week in Disney and pop culture. All right, Dan. Here we are. Another week in crazy, crazy headline news. Let's first start with Lightyear. Lightyear is making the rounds and is doing unbelievable business so far. Um, I don't know if uh, you plan on seeing Lightyear at all. Yeah, I am actually. I'm. I, I've been looking forward to this. The trailers I think have been fantastic. So right I, I'm. I'm actually going to go see it. I, I'm trying not to pay attention to any of the controversy swirling around this movie. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not either. Um, Buzz Lightyear blasts off with a 5.2 million in box office previews, which is really cool. To put it into perspective, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 spin dashed into $6.3 million back in April, and analysts project about a 70 to $85 million opening weekend at the domestic box office with a global projected global take of $135 million. Not too shabby, Dave. No, I don't think that's shabby at all. I think they're going to miss out on uh, uh, at least a dozen markets right now that are banning the film, mm-hmm. uh, and they're banning it because of the same-sex kiss, which, you know, don't don't get me going on this, you know, because it was originally cut out of the film. I'm curious to know if it was cut out of the film because it didn't move the story along, and it was a filmmaker decision or it was cut out of the film because it was a scared executive decision. Uh, and, uh, and then they capitulated and put it back in, which put an even bigger spotlight on it, which I think is ridiculous. And, and so now there, there are territories, uh, especially in, in the middle East and uh, uh, some of the uh, 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 Asian countries uh, that are, um, 
banning it from being screened because of that, uh, that thing, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that kiss and, and, you know, this kind of stuff, I don't know. I kind of feel like if they had already cut the kiss out and then they put it back in, well, why don't you just remove it for those countries that are currently now banning the film? Well, you know they, what I mean? They, they, and, and, they, yeah. and that, and then that opens up a whole other can of worms. You know what I mean? It it does. I mean, I believe they may have did that under the sly uh, for Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, because of the 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 one of the uh, characters, America Chavez, um, you know, is uh, is bisexual, I believe. But but um, the the whole situation here is: does it really serve the story? You that's know, really what you know, it, that, on, that honest, first and foremost that's what it needs to be you know when we yeah. is, that's the question yeah when when i write a song or when songwriters we we we, we look at the song what d- does service to the song what is the actual story thread you know throwing stuff in like you know whatever i mean there's there's a myriad of things that can be thrown out of a film you know because it just doesn't serve the story we need to move the plot along you know and so and there's always those considerations but you know this is once again another thing that uh you know disney can look at and and once again learn from it looks like they're in a perpetual cycle of learning and 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 shooting themselves in the foot I mean, it really just it, it seems that way that they're just shooting themselves in the foot on a weekly basis well yeah uh, i well, mean it's mm-hmm. just craziness because honestly you know al john the a lot of these films to me you know a film like lightyear you know or any of the disney animated films they're they're classic films you know uh these are films that they're making that to me are works of art but at some point, art and commerce intersect, you know, <laughs> and so you have to be conscious of your audience out there, you know, and and, and it seems like in like in recent <laughs> recent years that Disney seems to be just, you know, pissing off parts of their audience. Well, you, know? you and I both know that art and commerce do not have to intersect. If you if you are doing art films and independent films and independent music, you have the ability to do it your own way. Absolutely. You can control the pipeline of co- of content that you put out. You can control where it's distributed. You can control where it's displayed. But when it comes to a a, a company that is publicly held, where you have shareholders, everyone has yeah. a major stake. There's a lot of stakeholders involved. Look. You know, there are things that you could definitely avoid to do that. And there's no room for these personal agendas to come out in such a big way, which leads me to my next story, Dave. Yes. Uh, and that was from comicbook.com. <laughs> but I have to say from the Hollywood Reporter, one of our trusted sources, we, we quote at uh, for all of their editorial uh, news is this headline that popped up. No one is fired in Hollywood. So why was Disney's Peter Rice? And we talked a little bit about this when the word came out last week. It says here, the by, the, the byline is, uh, after baffling the ouster of the Disney content chief, CEO Bob Chapek may be thankful that he is that he has a respected and feared exec in Dana Walden to put to rest any backlash from his creative partners. Um, 
respected and feared, Dave, Dana Walden. Yeah. You know, like th- this is this is all very Machiavellian kind of stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was perceived that Peter Rice may have been positioning himself as a potential, you know, replacement for Bob Chapek. Uh-huh. And Bob just turns around and fires him. I mean, come on, let's face it. There's plenty of ways of handling these kinds of things. But as that as that one headline you read mentioned, nobody gets fired in Hollywood. Hollywood. No. You got a production deal and put out the pasture, you yeah. know what I mean? And it's done all very uh, civilly. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a very civilized or it used to be a civilized process. But to take a, an executive who is well-respected, has been in the industry for better than 30 years, and to just <laughs> out now fire him... <laughs> is just craziness because the, it's just more shock and awe about what the Disney company has been doing. Hey, look, I mean, yeah. it's just shocking. Yeah. I, I, I look at, and you know, it's funny. I said bull in a China shop. I think I said that last week. What is the, yeah. what is the picture that they put on here? This, uh, this illustration by it, Lars Lataro. Bob, Bob riding, it's riding a, bull. a bull. And there's a little picture <laughs> of Peter Rice on a, on a piece of China there being crushed. You know, uh, I, I feel, you know, people have been pegging me because of all the, the different Disney stuff we're involved in and other podcasters. Like, what do you think about this whole thing? And I said, bottom line is, is that, you know, I think he's afraid that they won't they because they won't renew his they may not renew his contract in what february when his time is up that um you know they already have that replacement and if you fire a replacement then it forces them to look at other people and if there's no one else that's qualified because he he's playing you know keep the keep the flag you know or you know, king of the mountain then they're going to have to scour and trying to train someone else. Uh, well, look, the Disney has a deep bench uh, of executives. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a lot of very talented people out there. Uh, you know, the, the fact that the board had to come out and say they fully support Bob uh, it, it is kind of a shock, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, they're, what else can they do at this moment? You trying know? to save I face. Mean, yeah, they're they're trying to save face. And, you know, this, this kind of stuff is not going to continue unabated for much longer. Uh, and you can be darn sure that if they're going to renew JPEG's contract, they've already had those discussions. And uh, and if they're not going to, then, you know, they're having those discussions. Uh, uh, but, you know, for him to fire Peter Rice like this, I'm curious to see how the board's going to handle him. Uh, if they were to change out leadership, but you know, this is the ongoing saga. It's a distraction from all the good things that the company represents. Uh, and it's overshadowing, uh, a lot of that material. Yeah. I remember, I remember we used to talk about the volunteers effort all the time and all their scholarship programs and all the the other stuff. You know, it's like, I I can't wait for this to simmer down. And by the way, all of this is affecting the stock. Uh, (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, there, there, there's a lack of confidence. I mean, when Peter Rice was fired, the stock went down another 10% over the following, you know, week. So uh, it's not helping anybody. I'll tell you that. Anyway, I I love, I love this quote though. I I have to leave with this quote. Uh, Memo to staff Walden said more, about rice um, than 
Chapek did in his own memo. She says, quote, I'm very fortunate to have worked alongside Peter Rice for a long time. He's a gifted executive, and I learned a lot from him. I know you all join me in wishing him the best in whatever he chooses to do next. <laughs> yeah, don't let oh, the door hit God. your ass on the way out. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. you know, future endeavored list. Hey, so uh, here we are, Guillermo del Toro. And we talked a little bit about this as well in the first look of his Pinocchio. Um, this is the Oscar winning director bringing you footage from his Netflix feature to the NSC Animation Film Festival. So um, I, I know that uh, you may have been involved in this uh, film festival in the past, Dave, but um, I mean, once again, just another del Toro uh, great kind of um artistic eye you know that yeah. he has yeah and you know something uh, i i have to say you know i, I i'll say this uh, right up front my favorite classic disney animated feature is pinocchio is that right i yeah i view i view disney's animated pinocchio from 1939 as an absolute masterpiece uh, of the art form. It's yes. absolutely gorgeous. I love the look of that film. I love everything about that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm going to see not just del Toro's version of Pinocchio, which is stop motion. Uh, but I'm also going to see the Robert Zemeckis version that's being done through Disney uh, with Tom Hanks in it. Mm-hmm. And I've already seen, seen, you know, some footage from the Tom Hanks version, and I've seen a little bit of del Toro's version. I'm going to see both. I'm going to see both because I love the story, you know, and I want to see their takes on the story. Uh, but nothing will ever eclipse Disney's, animated Pinocchio from 1939 at heart. You know, that is, I think it would be great Dave to have a panel of your peers actually debate what is their favorite and what maybe is the best uh, of Disney from that golden era. I'd love to sit there and listen to, to how yeah. you guys debate that. And, and, and you know something for some it's Snow White for others, it's Bambi, you know, and still others it's Fantasia. And as much as I love Fantasia, I still, you know, I, I put that up on a pedestal along with Pinocchio uh, and Snow White and Bambi. And you know what I mean? It's uh, but, but for me, you know, the, it, it's without question, Pinocchio is a masterpiece of, of hand-drawn animation. Yeah, without a doubt. Hey, so if you didn't know, the cast for Del Toro's Pinocchio include Kate Blanchett, Tilda Swinson, Christopher Waltz, Ron Perlman, Finn Hofford, John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson, and Vern Gorman. I mean, just an amazing cast and animation produced by the likes of uh, Lisa Henson, Alex Buckley, Corey Campadonio, and Gary Under with Patrick McHale with the, the screenplay. I mean, just incredible people uh, doing stop motion, being made at Shadow Machine in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if you know that film house or the studio. No, I don't. I don't. But but there there there's a uh, a good contingent of stop motion animators in the San Francisco Bay Area as well as in uh, or Portland, Oregon, uh, because you've got uh, Leica Studios up there. Uh, you know they did Box Trolls and some of those other films uh, that are really yeah. impressive uh, stop really taking stop motion to the nth degree right on well don't forget once again pinocchio uh the del toro version goes on netflix in december with zemeckis and hanks arriving in disney plus in september pretty cool indeed hey um before i forget another 
uh, animation um, thing that I got a press release on is also debuting the first half hour at this um, Annecy Animation uh, 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 Agency Film Festival, and that is Puss in Boots too. <laughs> just so yes. you know, um, you know Puss in Boots is is a great character once again, just kind of an offshoot uh, spinoff from Shrek. Of course, Antonio Banderas voices the titular feline, of course. And so this is the continuing advent- adventures of Puss in Boots. So be sure to check that out. Uh, it looks like it's going to be slated for release um, this winter. So be on the lookout for that. Pretty cool indeed. Yeah. Um, hey, so more Disney stuff. Uh, Disney delays relocation of thousands of jobs to Florida until 2026. Boy, who would have saw that coming? You know, a lot of people are saying, oh, this is part of the, you know, the the feud going on with Governor DeSantis in Florida and this and that. You know what? This is this has more to do with the fact that the campus that was being built down in Orlando to house all these people they were going to try and move from California uh, isn't going to be ready. Um, And there's I'm sure an undercurrent of a lot of people not wanting to move. Uh, and, you know, there, my sources within the company are telling me that there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll move to Florida. And, uh, and then they're, you know, out looking for new jobs. So um, I think that this is, you know, obviously all part of this whole Florida business, but it, it's not necessarily hooked to the politics as much as people want to read into it. Um, I do. I, I have to tell you, Al John, I, I have a friend who is in Imagineering who uh, has literally last week arrived in Florida as part of his move. Oh, OK. You know, and so he's already moved down there because that's where he chose to do. But there are a lot of people who are saying, like, I, I don't really want to leave California. Yeah, so. well, I, I get it. It's difficult to uproot. But look, you know, with the delays in in sh- in shipping materials, um, you know, there's a, all kinds of labor shortages that are going on right now. Yeah. You know, supply chain is still very much nerfed. I mean, so that is bound to happen. And so, yeah, that's definitely playing a part. But, you know, it's hard to uh, it's hard to not to uh, mix that political component in that narrative. Oh, I, you know? I, I know. And, and our next story is the same thing out here in California. Uh, Republicans <laughs> are targeting Disney's no fly zones on their U.S. parks. So, you know, after 9-11, there was a, a, a special uh, rule put in place where, you know, aircraft could not fly over the Anaheim or uh, Orlando uh, theme parks. Uh, and they did that for safety sake, but you know, uh, now it's, it, it's, uh, part of this, uh, political football of, of weaponizing politics and saying, Oh, well, you know, the, we're Republicans. We don't want you to have your fly zone, uh, no fly zone anymore. Yeah. You know? But so, you know what? I'm looking at this and it's just like just a handful. It's like literally six people who probably just, you know, uh, probably just making a whole lot of hoopla over nothing. Yeah. And, you know, the bottom line is, is that those fly zones need to be protected because 
there are tons of people that need to be protected in those zones. Yeah. To me, to me, it's a, it's a no brainer as far as safety goes. Of course. Uh, And they know it. (laughs) I I, I think, I think having a no fly zone around the actual theme park itself uh, is appropriate from a safety standpoint, uh, not only because of the concentration of people, but also because they're doing fireworks. Of course, you know, they're, they're doing fireworks at night, you know? So, I mean, for crying out loud, yeah. uh, this is the kind of stuff that, that just uh, is ridiculousness. Well, I think it just a little bit of, you know, gets into the wind and everybody's turning it around. You know, this has no chance, you know, let's, let's look at the safety here, folks. Skull Rock Podcast interview time. Well, Al John, once again, I, I got to tell you, I'm always looking forward to interviewing our guests, but I'm really looking forward to today. And I have been for weeks because I met uh, former Imagineer Eddie Sato, who now has his own design studio. I met him down at the Hojo's in Anaheim last month and we just hit it off. I, I was just so fascinated in talking with him. And so I, I just want to tell you right off the bat, he is somebody who has worked at Knott's Berry Farm. He's done Landmark Entertainment. He's worked on stuff at Universal Studios, Hollywood, Six Flags. He's done design for Mattel. He's, he's been uh, a uh, show producer and designer for Walt Disney Imagineering. He worked with Tony Baxter on Euro Disneyland, which is now Paris Disneyland, I guess. I mean, I could just keep going on and on, and then we end the show and never talk to him. So I'm going to welcome Eddie Sato. It's so great to have you here on the Skull Rock Podcast. Welcome. Well, anything called Skull Rock Podcast (laughs) has to be a wonderful show to be on, so I'm delighted to be here. And uh, yeah, just whatever you'd like to talk about, I'm ready for it. It was so fun meeting you there in Howard Johnson's. Yeah, and and you know something? I really wanted to to sort of talk uh, initially. I want to find out how you got in, because you you were born and raised in California. You know, I did a little research on you. You were born in Hollywood. You come from a very creative family because your your aunt... uh, uh, Marilyn Sato was a costume illustrator and designer who worked at Paramount Pictures, Universal, Walt Disney Studios. Your grandfather, this was fascinating. Your grandfather, Edward Sato, uh, was a scenic artist at MGM and a portrait artist. I wonder if Claude Coates crossed paths because Claude worked in the art department at MGM uh, in the 1930s, briefly before he started working for Disney. Well, it's interesting you ask that. I think the time frames did not overlap for Claude and my grandfather, because my grandfather got there around World War II. Okay. uh, It was hard to find work during World War II. He came forward to California and met with Clyde Geronimi, or Jerry Geronimi, because they were rival art students in New York. And Clyde, of course, became the producer or director, I believe, for Dumbo. And so he actually met with him at the Disney studio, and my aunt got one of the Dumbo maquettes out of the Disney studio that... Jerry Geronimi, they called him. There's obviously some of those are yeah. names. Yeah, gave him, gave my aunt that maquette and it sat on my mantle. Um, and kind of for living wage reasons, my grandfather really couldn't do a family of four very easily at the Disney studio, but he had an opportunity there. And then Clem Hall, who did a lot of work on the Hall of Presidents, Walt Disney World, Epcot, was a kind of a scenic artist at the Gene Autry Museum. Clem remembered my grandfather um, 
at a lunch I was at. He goes, yeah, I remember him vaguely, you know, they're, they're at MGM. So there's a little bit of cross paths, yeah. but definitely with the Disney studio. That, that, uh, that, that was very fascinating. Yeah, but, but, really French. you know, how, how did you, how did you get into this world of uh, theme parks and, and, and working, you know, uh, on attractions? I wanted to. <laughs> okay. End of interview. End of interview. No. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, I really wanted to, you know, and I think sometimes, um, I guess the biggest compliment to the Disney company is as a little kid, I'm sure all of us have experienced it. There's a moment where you be, you go from being someone who goes, you know, that was pretty good to I'm obsessed and I'm going to come back and see this movie 40 times. My whole summer is going to be watching back to the future. My whole summer is going to be doing this or that. Well, when I was a little kid, um, very young. I think my first trip to Disneyland must have been the early 60s. And uh, my father tells me that, you know, I kept tugging on his on his sleeve of his sweater after the fireworks there on Main Street going, Dad, I like Disneyland. He's like, do you like Disneyland? No, I like Disneyland. <laughs> so I think when you're a victim of experiential design or you're a victim of immersion, the way all of us were, where you go, I like this better than the suburbia I spend most of my day in. I would rather be in this thing called New Orleans that I don't know about. I might even open a book and and in and, and school learn about it because it's so interesting. You know, we're going to be talking a lot about experiential design. Can you just for our audience say, could you explain what experiential uh, attractions or immersive attractions, experiential design is to you? Sure. Um, To me, an experience, if you look it up in the dictionary, is where you absorb something or you assimilate something through all of your senses. You're you're you know, you you are gathering information through your body in real time, your sense of balance, the smell, the sound, all of that is coming in in synchronization at once through your body. Now, most companies, they hire an architect or they hire an interior designer, a lighting designer, whatever it is, uh, you know, to handle one of those senses. And what I have found by going into different environments like restaurants that you don't like that are too loud or the, the, the kitchen door is swinging and the fluorescent light keeps blinding you, um, it's too hot, they're out of sync. They're like an orchestra where not everyone is reading the sheet music correctly. And so a good experiential designer emotionally understands the essence of what the guest is supposed to feel in that. And then like an engineer takes the colors, the music, all of these elements, the smell, the texture, all of it, even the motion, the tempo of the vehicles and synchronizes it like an orchestra conductor takes this beautiful piece of music. Now somebody had to write the music like Wagner and say, you are going to be depressed really depressed, you know, or you're going to sense something magical with Camille Sasson and you hear the carnival of the animals or aquarium. So there's got to be that emotional thing you're conducting. And then you slave the environment around it. So every little cricket in the blue bayou, every little thing that you hear, it matters. Right. Now you may not be able to control it all, but to me, with all of that is in perfect sync and you can't be distracted by contradictions from the outside world, that's truly great immersion. It could be little, like putting on a VR headset, except VR headset doesn't do all the senses. It's right. not doing the temperature. Uh, it's creating sweat around your brow. It doesn't even really sync up perfectly with your eyes. You get emotionally tired. So experiential design to me, what I learned was that every single thing mattered. And John Hench, you know, with the idea of the master shot, where you see something from a distance and it sets up an expectation. 
Well, that's emotionally the trailer for the movie, right? You're getting excited about what you're going to experience as you get closer. All right. Now the details reward the emotion. They reassure you. They tell you that, hey, I am in 1890. And secretly, your mind is telling you all the time, no, you're not. No, you're not, Dave. You're not in 1890. That's because there's a giant American Express sticker on the register that tells you to use your credit card. Anyway, so but you, you know all those little things, but when an Imagineer is ahead of you, some person you've never met, putting this little tiny thing underneath the mat and you lift the mat in, in Main Street and you go, oh my goodness, it is 1890. Somebody was here ahead of me because everything I turn over, every rock I flip over, there's just more detail. It's keeping the spell alive. And that's what we're paying for. We are paying for keeping the spell alive. I had to laugh my head off yesterday seeing this construction fence in the Blue Bayou because they're working on the Pirates of the Caribbean. And I said, is this the first construction fence inside a ride? You know, <laughs> the one little detail, and by the way, maybe they had to do that. I don't know. Maybe there's a better way to do that or like don't open the restaurant. But when you look at all these things, those details, one little thing, even a cast member can mess up the whole orchestra. It can mess up the whole song. I bury call, you know, it's, it's, it's backward masking. It's something in there that messes it up. So you asked for a sentence. I gave you a paragraph. Sorry about that. I, I, no, and I, I, That's think what that... I do for a living. I do it outside of Disney. That's my business now is applying that to products and brands and places and ideas and airplanes and stuff like that. And I, and I think that was a great explanation. One of the things that I thought of as you were talking was the like going through the Pirates of the Caribbean because it's such a long attraction at Disneyland. You really sort of sink into it. You really kind of get enveloped into it, you know, going through the grotto, setting it all up. And then that beautiful reveal out into the 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 big opening with the pirate ship pounding the the Spanish town, um, that that to me is where it really works well. And where it doesn't work well is when you go on an attraction that is too short. You know, uh, it, it it doesn't give you enough to to sink in, and and that I I had always felt that about the Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. And the Pirates of the Caribbean at Walt Disney World. And, and by the way, I had done Pirates of the Caribbean at Walt Disney World before I ever did Disneyland. Right. So, so to me, <laughs> like when I did when I did Pirates down at, at, at Disney World, I was like, wow, this is so cool. But you know, like six or seven years later, when I actually did Pirates at Disneyland. I was like, oh, my God, this is so much better, you know, and and I, in a sense, what you were just saying, it's it's really all the detail and all the sensors, uh, all your senses being immersed into something for a period of time. It's really true. And you talk about time. See, people sometimes forget designers forget that there's a tempo and just like an orchestra or any sort of symphony, there's a rest. There's times when you don't have to see something going on all the time. You want to build anticipation. And so, you know, great attractions can be episodic. And one of the things that's great about Pirates of the Caribbean, whether they didn't have enough money or nobody knew what they wanted to do next or for whatever reason, you know, the Claude Coates story of going from the caves, you know, building, building to that pirate ship. But isn't it powerful that you're in a radio Orson Welles radio moment where, you know, 
ye come seek an adventure. You have that whole, you know, curses have ye, uh, yeah. properly warned ye be, says I. <laughs> Who knows when that evil curse will strike the greedy. And you're just in the dark. Yeah. But it creates anxiety and anticipation. What's going to happen next? Because the voice leads the live pirate. You weren't seeing live pirates yeah. until that moment. And here's this thing, you know, perhaps he knows too much, you know, and you're like, <laughs> oh no, what did I see? What did I see? And then there they are. There's Barbarossa or there's Blackbeard in the old days. So those moments of space are so useful and so powerful, almost more powerful than seeing something. Yeah. The but a really good designer, yeah. that part of the immersion is to say, now we need to take the senses and let let you do some work. Let the guest begin to imagine. And this is sometimes we put out too much story and decide to have the birds, you know, telling you everything that you're just looking at. That's not a good movie. Right. Implicit versus explicit. Yeah. What, what, what was the first attraction that you worked on? Was it down at Knoxbury Farm? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I worked on things that never got built, like so many people, you know, you, you suggest and pitch things and you get a lot of rejection, which is very healthy. And the rejection had gotten so bad that I pitched a ride at Knott's Prairie Farm, this big water ride, flash flood rapids, you know, send the 1880s a flume ride with a sinking ghost town. So there's this flash flood rapids thing. And they estimated it to a shocking, you know, wallet breaking, bank crusting, you're irresponsible. I think $10 million or $12 million to build a ride back then. Which, so, which, is, uh, which is a drop in the bucket today, by the way. It's a meeting at Imagineer. <laughs> right. so, uh, yeah, I mean, or anywhere else. So um, I was kind of like on this thing where they were going to get rid of me. They're like, well, you, they didn't, you know, they didn't decide to do the ride. We just hired you to do little Eddie. I was 19 or 20 years old. I never, no experience, never did anything in my life. Never. I, but I, I did draw a ride. They liked, first of all, there was, it was an alcohol driven pirates of the Caribbean thing called rum runners of 1921, which was, you know, kind of a, a gangster type, funny gangster, you know, some like it hot gangster, funny 1920s. Cause they had a twenties area. And then um, I found out these lawyers were getting upset at Knott's Berry Farm because people were getting uh, injured or being threatened to be injured on this dangerous motorcycle ride, very high center of gravity motorcycle ride called the Cycle Chase. You could look it up. And it had four tracks where people race each other, much like Radiator Springs today. Um, and my boss said, look, you want to save your job. The lawyers are really worried about what they're going to do with this ride. They might have to just close it. Why don't you go out and look and see if there's something you can do with it? Because people are getting injured. Maybe change the seat on the car. I don't know. Just get out of the office, will you? Okay, so I did. And I looked at it, and I remember the R-Gang comedies where, you know, the old MGM films, you can see them on Turner Classic Movies, where the, the Spanky and the kids make little racing cars out of crates, soapbox racing cars. I yeah. thought, you know, if we could only lower the center of gravity, take off that motorcycle, put these four racing people down low, put them in a, like a bobsled configuration or a flume configuration. That way they can't reach each other. They're kind of enclosed, low center of gravity, very safe. So I went home that night and I thought, well, you know, this is worth a shot. 
and made a little model out of paper. It's like a cardboard model with marker pens, drew it. And I have to admit, this is a cute little Mr. Toad car meets a soapbox made out of crates, tin can headlights, I cut stuff up. And then I didn't have any wheels, so I went and cut some buttons off of my wife's overcoat, these black buttons. <laughs> I'm sure she appreciated all. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and took hat pins, you know, and put them through and made this little car. And this is like probably the one artifact for my whole career I wish I had because I told the story. I wish I had the thing. I think it finally just fell apart. So I took it into work and my boss is like, well, Eddie, you know, where's where's the drawings? Where's the ride? I go, well, you know, it's only been a day, my friend. You know, I don't know. I don't know what you expect, but he goes, well, what, what do we got? I got to go in the meeting and talk to these guys. So, well, here's a little model. It's this car. We're going to change the vehicle. It's going to be a soapbox racer ride. Remember in the 20s and 30s, and of course, it's a themed 1920s area, the 20s airfield. So it fit the theme. I said, this could be really cute. Remember, if you lower the center of gravity, everybody can ride it. It's not 48 inches plus. It's anybody, kids. It's a kiddie coaster. And it, it has competition. When you lean, you know, when you lean, the gravity gives you the impression that you're uh, really racing. It gives the kids a, an interactive stake. So he goes, oh, I don't know. I'll take it in there. We'll see what happens. He thought the car was cute. That was about all yeah. I had. And uh, so he took it in the meeting and came out. And I said, well, you know, what happened? He goes, it's the weirdest thing. All they did was play with the car. I go, you really? He goes, yeah, the little wheels. You, you, they played with the car on the conference table. I go, so what does that mean? Am I fired or what? He says, no, we're doing the ride. <laughs> so I'd only, you know, I had no experience. I was the assistant project designer at Knott's Berry Farm. I had never done anything. I mean, I designed swimming pools for my father at a pool company, you know, destroyed people's backyards for them. And uh, at this point, now they kind of threw me out there and, and basically hired a design firm made of ex-imagineers. This was very appealing to a Disney freak like me. You mean I get paid to go sit and have and do sketches and these real people that really know how to do this are going to take my sketches and draft them and develop them and show me, you know, the ropes. So I got taught by Fred Hope. Who this, this, is, this is Landmark Entertainment, right? No, this is no. the only animated display and design company um, with Fred Hope, Roger Brogy Jr. Oh, wow. These are the sons yeah. of the greatest art directors and mechanical engineers out At Disney, Fred yeah. Hope. Fred Hope came from 20th Century Fox, I and mean, you think of Gone with the Wind. Sure. Well, his uh, son, and actually his grandson was the gentleman who was my teacher. And that gentleman went, who just recently told me this, went to Mary and not. She's like, what do I do with Eddie over here? He's a 20-year-old idea guy. I don't know. I, you know what, I want him to do this, but you know, obviously, what are we going to do? Fred goes, look, we've got all the right people. I will teach him. We will take his ideas and make them real with him. You know, so I did original art of all the sets and picked Henry Mancini music and recorded, did my voices of drunken cats and all kinds of crazy stuff. And we made this little kitty cat world of the wacky soapbox racer ride. And it did a million people in 11 weeks. It was, wow. like, it did 120% of the attendance of the park. Wow. Every day. Wow. That's like phenomenal. So this ride was a smash hit. Because it not because of me, but because it appealed, and it, it was a ride that younger kids could go on, like a fabulous kitty coaster with competition. Kids went on it over and over and over, racing each other, and really is the precursor to the Cars Radiator Springs we tried at WDI. I, it was on my you know bucket list to try to get a competition racing ride. I tried the rocket bikes. That didn't work out, which turned into rocket rods, which really didn't work out. Yeah. I didn't do that ride. Yeah, uh, but. 
uh, you know, so this competition thing was something the Rye Group was focused on for a long time. Sorry about that, but that's a long answer. But no, no, that, that that's right. fantastic. But but from from Knott's Berry Farm, you went to uh, uh, Landmark Entertainment. Yeah, to Landmark. Yeah. And by the way, if your listeners are interested, there's a soap, the wacky soapboxracers.com website that has all the historic pictures from my archive of building the ride, music from the ride, history of the ride, and all this crazy stuff. Oh, that's awesome. So and, we, and we can put that in the show notes, Al John. Put that in the show notes, right there in the show notes. We got it. We got it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, how long were you at Landmark Entertainment? You know, my job cycle of just impatience, I guess, was three years. So it knots for about three years, worked through Camp Snoopy. Um, and then uh, for Robin Hall, who was a senior designer. I was not the senior designer, but I, he was very generous and let me do um, little rides there. You know, this the little huff and puff pump and ride and few yeah. buildings. And he was the master designer though. That was his thing. Very nice guy, very kind and patient guy. Um, I interviewed at Landmark and they were doing something themed and they were the wannabe, you know, wet enterprises. If you couldn't, if you couldn't have wet and you were six fives or something or universal, you went to Landmark. Um, it was called Gary Goddard productions at the time. Right. So I interviewed with them and got to do my dream, which was, steampunk before steampunk called the laboratory of scientific wonders yes professor phineas flag and his <laughs> great laboratory <laughs> it was this amazing you know crazy walkthrough uh, in baltimore maryland at the six flags power plant and and that's really what uh, uh caught tony baxter's eye uh you know or so the story goes well it, it is the story and uh i'm sticking to it and if it's not true, it should be. But the um, the thing that was funny about that is that sometimes you, you so as the young designers, this is the advice department, you're like, oh, I don't really want to do this. I don't really think this is fun. I don't like working on the construction fence design for Pleasure Island or whatever. You know, one thing leads to another and you never know where it's going to be. So I'm on this, you know, pretty much this, this location-based entertainment center it has no rides in it. You know, it doesn't have a very good life expectancy, but the sets were awesome. I mean, we got to design submarines. I mean, I had a ball. I mean, I got to draw my brains out and do all this cool, you know, basically channel Harper Goff, you know, without the banjo and sort of just do that. And I knew Tony loved Discovery Bay. And I was kind of doing, you know, my best Discovery Bay, Frank Gorshin impression, you know, of that. And drawing stuff. So Bruce Gordon was Tony Baxter's right-hand person at the time. So I would funnel spy photos. Tony is very curious what Gary Goddard was doing. Gary Goddard has snarky ways like, you'll never get Discovery Bay, but I will. You know, so Tony was very, you know, uh, which was not a nice thing to say, but however, it was kind of true. So um, Tony was very curious about what Gary was doing. And the place and the place didn't do well, but it was an amazing piece of design. We had Jim Michelson, Eddie Martinez, Gary, Herbie Ryman's working on it. I met him there, you know, I mean, the networking was fabulous. And uh, even though it didn't last that long, Tony liked what he saw, thank goodness. And, and I worked really hard. I mean, I worked super, super, super hard. And the photos and the imagery of it and the music, and we had top talent working on this thing. John Debney did the music there. Right. Yeah. Famous Academy Award. Sure. Yeah. I called him like, hey, John, can you help me? He's like, what? 
Who are you again? So anyway, um, a lot of people, a lot of Jim Michelson, fabulous designer. He, I was, I, I got to work with all the great people there. So anyway, that was Landmark Entertainment. Finally, Tony goes, hey, Eddie, you know, what are you doing Friday night? You want to come work on Disneyland Euro Disney and uh, I might have a place for you as a designer. No, no model shop. See, I, I used to tell, ask my wife if I could go work at the model shop. And she's like, well, that's like five bucks an hour. You make more at Sears selling washing machines than you could make there. You're not allowed to leave Sears uh, unless you, you know, unless you make more money. This is not a less money world. Like, okay. You know, so, they, so you they, they did for my wife. So you did Main Street USA for Euro Disneyland. That's correct. Now, did you do anything else at Euro Disneyland or was that specifically? Well, I mean, Main Street had the one, the one good thing is Main Street, I was reminded continuously is not even a land. It's a mall, you know, which, you know, it's kind of depressing, frankly, running, you know, people say, well, let's just build another Florida or another Tokyo with a roof. And Tony and I were committed to not having the sonics of that glass roof of Tokyo. We just didn't want to do that. And Tony you know, and I worked together and he's wonderful. And he's, we, we basically managed to get those arcades that run behind it because uh, it was a budget, a weather weatherproofing budget for that park. So we used the, instead of doing a Tokyo roof, we did the arcades. And frankly, we tried to do everything we could to not build a main street no one would relate to, frankly, because no one in Europe cares about yet another cute village with architecture stolen from them. So we didn't <laughs> want to do that. Uh, yeah, so it was kind of a bit of an adventure working with Tony and, and really, we got, I got to do the concept, the original concept work for the hotel, steam trains. I'm a huge train fan privately. So getting to do the steam trains made it worth it. Um, I tried to do a people mover, a Victorian people mover called the elevated train, L train system, and a 20s Main Street. But we didn't end up building that. It got kind of out of control, expensive, and gave Mr. Eisner an excuse not to do it, which is probably a really good one because we I turned it into a land, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'm not supposed to have a land, you know, so go back to the photocopier. Now, how long were you with uh, Walt Disney Imagineering? I was with Imagineering um, from 1986. I got my, my ID card still said WED on it and then uh, left in uh, just about the year 2000. All right. So you had yeah. a good run there. It wasn't three years. Well, 13 years, roughly. Yeah, yeah. Which is fantastic, and and when you stepped out on your own, because I I want to I want to talk a little bit. I want to spend a little time on this part of your career because I find it fascinating. Because At least one, how, yeah, one, yeah. yes. But how how does one go about leaving Imagineering and taking this concept of experiential design? out on his own into the world. Now, I know the answer to this, but I want you to tell our audience what what you think it is. You know what I mean? Like why like why did you decide that was the right time for you to go do it? Okay, so at the time I was in charge of the um after Disneyland Paris, in charge of the portfolio for Tokyo Disneyland as the sort of lead, the Tony Baxter for Tokyo Disneyland. Right. Okay. So one of the attractions they wanted was an attraction so good that it would prevent people from only going to the new untried, fabulous Tokyo Disney Sea and cannibalizing the whole audience, like a little herd of cattle, running over to Tokyo Disney Sea and never going back to Tokyo Disneyland. So, but you can't, you're not allowed because Oriental Land Company likes to use things that are proven. Right. Pretty smart, those those folks over there. And uh, I couldn't find anything on the shelf that was really that good. Uh, except I saw this, this ride system called Aquatopia. 
I said, you know, what would happen if we took the ride system from Aquatopia out of the water where it goes one mile an hour and we put it in a dark ride environment? We could do anything we want, like a trackless dark ride. And that is what became Pooh's Honey Hunt. And that attraction, as we were designing it, I quit before it finally opened, but I was there most of the time. Also, Mission Space is an attraction that um, I was able to spearhead and begin. So those attractions were in progress with entirely new ride systems. That was very exciting. And Marty Sklar, who was very kind, um, could see I was bored. And I said, I want my own little studio in Imagineering just to cook up ideas. You can feel free to hate them and present them. So here we are almost in the year 2000, and we're building and the Tokyo Disneyland portfolio of Pooh and Mission Space is going and all these things are going out of this little studio one of which is the ABC Times Square Studios, this giant video facade, internet connected, never been done for the millennium facade for ABC. That was also a project. So I like doing things I've never done before. Oh, so kind of running, learning how to run a design studio on other people's money inside of Disney. Right. And running your own business, yeah. building out all the talent. And part of it was bringing in talent from other firms, like from Mercedes Benz, uh -huh. an industrial designer or different people from different places. So it was very, very stimulating. So every year I had to go back and get budget. I am actually leading to the answer to this. No, question. no, I, I'm, so uh, well, I come I'm fascinated. Back, and so we had presented all the other things to Mr. Pressler, uh, you know, who's running everything. I said, you know, we believe the future is trackless wireless ride technology. Because, and I won't say what it is for NDA reasons, but right, right. here's the five new frontiers beyond Winnie the Pooh that this would be really good for. And all I want in my little budget is to continue exploring and building on this platform. And this is the future. Now, this is the year 1999. Mm -hmm. Prince is still singing. I mean, it's just yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> so there we are. Okay. And they were like, yeah. And I just showed the rocket bikes in Santa Clarita. We had built a test track and shown that. And they were like, yeah. And I was doing wheelies. It was awesome. You know, it looked like a chopper. And anyway, anything that looked new and exciting, no one was interested in it. No one. Why? I even said, well, why can't I be the CCO for um, Disney Online? I want to work on a new frontier. I'll do anything that's new and different wow. and breakthrough. Well, well, why well, why know, do you think that? Why do you think they were like that? Because they were administratively driven. I sat at a meeting where oh, I won't even get into it, but it, but basically I could tell by sitting in meetings where Mr. Pressler would say, look at an idea for a ride and say, don't make it as make it just like that, but not as good as what Universal is doing. And I'm thinking, well, why, why would I stay here and do that? So now, Imagineering has been through some great, you know, upturns like Lassiter. I mean, there's been times when there's been budget like Galaxy's Edge. I drool when I see the money they had for those rides. So I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying at the moment I was there, they were in, you know, I was at Disneyland with Tony closing rides. You know, I said, hey, let's, you know, let's do some swag for the accountants, like pinstripe suits that say attraction closer team 1999 and hand out <laughs> swag. You know? I mean, I was so depressed. So I just felt the pendulum is swinging really far. It's OK. It's going to swing the other way. But why should I sit through this? I don't want to. And then just then I got I, I was developing some television shows and some things in media and I was offered money to leave. Right. So I thought, you know. One last chance. Wireless rides, guys. Let me beg you. Let's do that. No, we don't know what we want. I said, okay, well, I can't wait for that. So, so when you left, you set up Sato Studios. 
Well, no, I went to an internet company that bought me out of uh, Disney and that only lasted nine months. I could kind of smell that, but I did learn very, very quickly how to make content for the web and make television programs, almost like an independent film producer. So I knew how to write, work with crews, shoot, and ran an online advertising agency for about nine months. And it did really well, actually. So so parts of it were good, parts of it weren't. And then an investor came and started a company called Progress City. You ever heard that term before? Yeah, I've heard that. We were going to blend the, basically it was metaverse before metaverse. We're going to blend physical places with virtual places. That was in the year 2001. And uh, after 9-11 hit, we were doing really well. And then that stopped. I started developing TV shows for VH1. So MTV gave me an office to develop television shows. Meanwhile, I was locking the door, not telling anyone, and designing a Ferrari dealership for Steve Wynn and an Aston dealership uh, in San Fernando Valley and started creating immersive entertainment. So I, by accident, I was just using what I knew to create these instinctively complete total environments. You know, the Encounter restaurant at LAX is an example of a total restaurant. So I was just taking this total world creation and applying it to a brand like Aston Martin or Ferrari or, you know, uh, Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas or whatever it was. I was just, you know, you kind of go by instinct, um, David. It's just sort of your instincts. You just look at something, it doesn't feel right, and you do an analysis and then help the client change. Let, let me ask you this. I, I want to drill in on Aston Martin because I, I love Aston Martin's designs. Uh, I think their cars have beautiful lines to them. Oh, they um, uh, but uh, when you talk about a, a complete immersion uh, for a company like Aston Martin, is that designing sort of the showroom for the car? With, yes. which, become, which becomes almost like this, this private suite Kind it's of like, oh, you're leading this on. It's exactly what it was. <laughs> I, I the reason why I'm saying that I happened to actually go into uh, one uh, that Did you was, go to Galpin. Yeah, the one at Galpin. Yes, That's the one we worked on. Yeah. So. So yeah. So you know, Bo Bachman, who's an entrepreneur and owner of Galpin, um, loves to do new things. I met him on literally. You actually can meet someone on a flight and and have a new client. So yeah, we flew back from London together, sitting at the bar in Virgin Atlantic in the first class bar, and we kind of conceived the whole thing at the bar because he was coming back from Jaguar and says, I want to do something in a private way, but I want people, you know, something that would blow a billionaire away because what can you do? I said, well, it wouldn't be finishes, but what it could be is make people feel like they're in a Bond film without ever saying the words James Bond. Yeah. So we created, if you go to sotostudios.com, any, anyone, any listener or viewer can go and um, look at this. It's on the site. So it has a bank vault with your car in it. So when your car is finished, they open the vault door and there's the car you designed in a vault. Yeah. And it's right out of Dr. No or any one of these films, you know. But we don't want to take away from the car because the car is good on its own. That's the worst thing you could do. Just create an environment that basically is the legacy of the car. It's the immersive experience of, immersive. Of, actually, of actually purchasing yeah. your car and picking it up, you know? Right. And so when I asked the salespeople a couple of years later, I go, what works about this and what doesn't? They said, what really works is that people feel like it's private consumption. Yeah. You know, no one's watching me, especially as celebrities that come in through this secret entrance in the back. I guess it's not secret now. And so you come in through the back and you go up the stairs through the airlock and literally leather door opens in the cylinder and you go in and, uh, you know, 
they buy every accessory possible because no one's judging them. No one's right. watching. Yeah. It's just, it gives you permission to kind of be a kid again in the way that main street or Disney does, except you want, you can be your inner bond, you know, <laughs> and it makes you feel special. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the whole thing about an experiential uh, immersion, uh, regardless of what the product is, it's making you as the consumer feel special totally, and, and feel cool. You know, and, and the funny thing is, this is why it's important to never spell out every little detail in a literal way to the guest because you want to give them room to dream. I remember a story that they on the Rivers of America, they wrote this big script describing everything you could possibly see around the Rivers of America. And this is going to be really good for all the Disney fans because now they're going to know, you know, where that elk went to college or what lodge it went to is it standing on the side of the, I don't know. They didn't, they didn't say, I just made that up. Yeah, but still. You know, it's like, oh, that went to the elk lodge. You're making, you're making a good point though, you know? Yeah, yeah. So let's spell out every little detail because that's what the fans really want. Well, fans don't really want that. They want the premise and people want the freedom, like an impressionist painting, to look at it. And, you know, you can imagine how good, let your brain, which is far more sophisticated and amazing than the haystacks, you know, Monet would paint. And you just say, well, no, I can, I can see everything in that. You've got to let the guest play their own role. The LARP thing is powerful. You have to let the guest be that. It's so funny on the Galactic Star Cruiser, the person on Twitter that said, I, I wanted to fit in so much. I was handing out business cards because I wanted to be a, a merchant as part of the story. So I went back and this person got yelled at, you know, <laughs> took their business cards away. You can't do that. You're you're getting into the show. You know, I'm like, well, isn't that the danger? You know, I mean, you're you're letting people hold one end of the steering wheel, but isn't that why we're there? You know, as a boy on Tom Sawyer Island, thank goodness I could do anything and play with my friends in those caves all day. And we made up all kinds of stuff. And it's that sense of it's 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 you're using your imagination and it's the sense of discovery. You're not you're not being told every little detail. Like you said, you're you're allowing the guests to discover stuff. Uh, that's, that's, you know, it's sort of the, the hidden Mickey idea, you know, uh, you know, you, you drop these things in whatever you're building and you allow the guests to discover them. Now that's interesting. You mentioned hidden Mickey. I think it's very different and that hidden Mickey is the fact that somebody there is geocaching and the people have geocached these things. But when you put a detail in, like the manhole covers on Main Street coming from the Smithsonian and really having a story, the richness is there to reaffirm the premise of Main Street. But it's not saying, oh, David isn't wearing his barber shop quartet outfit. Now he's <laughs> a bad boy. He's got to go home and you're not in 1893.5. Ooh, you know, yeah. we're not we're not shaming you for that. We're yeah. just letting you be in this premise and you can have what you want out of it and, uh, and let you enjoy it. Cause these things mean so many things to different people, you know? So, so, you know, we, you, you've done these uh, experiences for purchasing automobiles that are very cool and immersive. Uh, but also you're designing aircraft interiors and creating, <laughs> creating experiences. And, and I, and I do want to mention the fact that you have clients, 
in Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. I know I don't know how much you could talk about that, but 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 that but you, what you're bringing to the table with all of these different brands is that experiential immersion into whatever it is, right? Whatever it is. I mean, you know, and so my resume from mission space onward and then working, I have, I can't talk about what exactly, but I have some experience with blue origin. I have experience currently blue uh, with Virgin Galactic. And, you know, and I think if you talk to those companies, they're selling a ride. So why, and, 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 you know, aircrafts are highly regulated environments. So Embraer was a client of our studio, which is right behind literally with Airbus and Boeing, I mean, they're number three in the world, you know, and they do private jets, the best you could possibly find. And they're also very progressive as far as design. So I wanted the, the environment I'm in right now, you can see is called Sky Ranch One, which we won an award with Embraer um, for this kind of ranch inspired aircraft, equestrian inspired aircraft. So yeah, I mean, if you're a ride guy and you understand, basically all it is, is understanding guests and being the guest. I never cease being the guest. And, and do anything but, that I wouldn't want to sit in. But when you're when of, you're yeah. doing like uh, Ranch One for this aircraft, um, uh, are you meeting with the client, the the person that's actually paying the bill for the for the plane's interior? Well, the, the way aircrafts work is you meet with a client, and that they basically have to give you their family program. Like, what are they using the plane for? What is the range of the aircraft? There's all these. It's kind of like a program for a ride. I mean, because some people don't need a big plane if they're going to be flying locally. Um, they may have kids that want to be on the carpet playing Scrabble. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do or video games, you know. So you're, you're really doing a custom environment. Now, a lot of most aircrafts, 99% of them are not custom. Um, it was interesting that um, these custom interiors, I ended up being more valuable for marketing than anything else. And what you really find out is that most people just change colors of seats and things because, uh, you know, they're not the, this is like a $63 million aircraft plus $10 million interior. So you're up at 80 something for the jet. Yeah. It's almost like a Boeing business jet, uh, BBJ. So we do concept work for people. We have yachts. I mean, the most famous thing we ever did was, um, what if a yacht could fly and putting a Chris Craft vintage yacht design into an airplane called Sky Yacht One? All wow. this is on our Sato Studios website. That, that I, I, that I want to check out. Yeah. I, I'm curious if, if you're doing private jets, have you done any work with any major airlines to improve the sort of mass market interior of uh, some of the planes uh, or no. even business or first class kind of things? It's funny. The answer would be no to that. However, we've done work on terminals. Everything that happens from the curb to the time that you get in the aircraft, because I think we'd all agree that airlines somehow don't know who you are once the door opens and you're out of there. It's like, goodbye. So, you know, what would make more, and the airlines really do want that, but what would make more of a seamless experience between the transit authority, the airline, and um, all the businesses that exist within a terminal, how do you reimagine it as less friction and more enjoyment? Because, you know, all, all these regulations and the Homeland Security have made air travel kind of unattractive. Yeah. yeah. Not very fun. I know. It's I not I, jet I, set anymore. It's I'm upset cu- instead of jet set. I'm curious, just from a, 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 a sort of a 30,000 foot view, uh, do you feel like as uh, uh, consumers, 
we're being uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more in the way of immersive experiences, whether it's going into a, a Whole Foods or going to a Nordstrom's or going, you know, to, you know, uh, take a flight to visit grandma and grandpa. You know, I mean, are we are we as a society sort of veering that way where everything becomes an experience and a story? Well, I mean, advertising agencies want you to think that. They think they are the perfect purveyor of story and immersion at your deodorant is a, a storytelling experience or whatever, you know, Old Spice, and you're going to think you're at sea and all that. But however, I feel like the divisive world we need in, me, we live in, only creates a greater need for escape. And so whatever that escape is, whether it's the so-called metaverse, which is sort of second life all over again, or something you know, coming back, all of these things are, are very, very precious. And the purveyors that really create great alternative realities, um, you know, I feel like that's going to, going to be that. Um, people are more sophisticated than they are. And, you know, they've been in the past. And you're going to see, I think, more of that. I mean, immersive attractions where I think their projection mapping is going to get burned out pretty quickly where you're in a white box and they're showing yeah. motion graphics of Van Gogh and you really think you saw Van Gogh or whatever. All those things are you know going to cycle, I think. But basically, I feel like experiences are going to get more intimate because computers can provide mass customization. As artificial intelligence or machine learning, as it's called, gets more personal and it's in the, you know, most right now it's very prehistoric with Genie Plus with the grunts and groans of, oh, we don't have enough room for you on the attraction you came for. Go over there. Uh, no, yeah. no, no. Go over there. You know, all that's going to get better. You know, all these things are getting more personal and better as these things learn what you want to do, you know, and, and hopefully become frictionless. That's what luxury is. Luxury, what separates high priced luxury from everything else is frictionless experience. Right. Exactly. That's uh, the difference between going on a cruise where they're asking for your room card to charge every drink and donut you get to going on a cruise where it's all inclusive. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I went to the Discovery Cove at SeaWorld years ago. And when I sat, I, I, I was working for SeaWorld. So they sent me to the Discovery Cove in Florida where it's all inclusive. It's like 80 bucks or a hundred and something. I don't know what it is, a lot. Okay, all the Fritos, you could just go and grab them off the counter, as many as you wanted. And it was amazing. And I, I had to be a mystery, mystery guest, right? So I would go sit next to other people on the lawn chair. You know, you'd look over and i go, hey, you know, this is pretty cool, huh? What do you think? And people are like, you have no idea how I love not being nickeled and dimed. I just love the idea that I can't even remember what I paid, but my kids are not coming to me for the credit card or the wristband. And I don't think that there's no, there's no additional charges except for a few things um, like specialty drinks, like a signature drink is more, but pretty much people who drink as much beer as they want and their kids could just go be eating fruit loops you know, all afternoon long, you know, you know, spitting them out in the ocean or whatever, in the lagoon, uh, and then enjoying it. And the parents were so relaxed. I mean, I think everyone's just underestimating this frictionless thing. I, I think it's funny, though. Did you notice that people, I mean, you're always going to have somebody that'll take advantage of it and like go grab, you know, 42 bags of Fritos to take back to their room and stuff in their suitcase. But most people are pretty reasonable, aren't they? Well, Discovery Cove is not tied to a hotel room. You got to take a bus to it. So there's no little 
little locker for you to go put, you know, all the candy bars in that are melting in the Florida heat, you know, inside your locker, you know, and, and of course the kids are going to do that, but here's what happens. I mean, I spent I think two days just observing people get burned out on excess. There's only yeah. so much of that you can do and it's hot. And you know, the other thing I thought was interesting too, which I loved and no one's even noticed this. Everyone has to wear a black wetsuit. And it's kind of like Dapper Day in rubber. And you kind of go, <laughs> hey, everybody looks kind of cool in their, you know, body glove thing. And it doesn't even matter if your body is in a perfect shape. You kind of blend in with everybody else and everybody looks kind of equal. And it's just sort of a neat thing because everyone looks aquatic. And there's, you know, it's, it's sort of like taking away graphic confusion. Yeah. And people take their wetsuit off or whatever. They have a bathing suit underneath. But for the most part, it was like theming the public into this kind of worked. Like Dapper Day is kind of fun. I went to a, a Porsche meet on a big lawn the other day and everybody brings their 9-11s. This kind of harmony of environment, you know, yeah. it kind of works. And then you combine that with these activities and free things and, the, you know, the, the kids are satisfied. They're just off doing stuff. I guess cruise ships do that, you know. I, you know, I want to I take us back to the beginning of our conversation because you and I met at the Hojo's in Anaheim because we were taking a look at the uh, House of the Retro Future Suite that Hojo's has put together. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so, and Nancy and I had, had the opportunity to spend the night that, that evening, but we we were all in there chatting and getting sort of the lowdown from Jonathan, the general manager, on the different aspects and thought process that went into the design of that space. And, you know, when you look at that, it, it, it's a very cohesive design space that felt very comfortable. It, it, it is this retro future kind of feel to it. Uh, do you see more of that happening in the hospitality uh, end of things? And I'm not saying specifically, you know, house of the future, but I, I, I'm talking in terms of, you know, uh, taking design themes uh, to the nth degree a little bit, like the TWA hotel uh, at JFK, which I actually saw early this morning because I was in New York this morning. And here I am in Los Angeles talking to Eddie Sato this afternoon, modern, the modern world of a jet setter. Yeah. I think the TWA hotel, the operators of it, I think, or at the time I was there more than a year ago uh, or two years ago when they first opened, you had not quite figured it out yet. So I would give, you know, mixed marks to that. But the environment, the immersiveness and the details they put in, and they still let you personalize things and do stuff. They didn't go too far. Things weren't so precious. I think hotels now and resorts have to work harder because of Airbnb. You know, like when we, our family went to Europe and we decided that that's what we were going to do. We only maybe did one hotel out of the whole thing. The rest was these apartments that are in Paris and you get the feel of Paris and, you know, that immersion of being there, whether it has antiques in it, kind of like they had retro record albums in that home of the future suite, you know, that's special. Again, let's go back to special. Um, that makes it really fun. I think there's a borderline though. If you go too far in the hotel room, you, you know, you're like worried about breaking everything or not, or, or your deposit going away or whatever. Um, but I, but I, do, I do think these rooms that enhance where you're at, I think like the city of New Orleans is that way. I stayed in a, the most gorgeous, was it something DeVille? 
I don't know, something to build right in the middle of the French Quarter. And you open your balcony and there's the palms and the, the orchestra band from Pat O'Brien's is playing there. And, then, you know, I mean, you're really living, living it. I think that's very, very important. And I love working on projects like that. Yeah. I, I, you know, look, you don't have I, to do a lot is my point. You know, I, I think, you know, you can go uh, to a hotel and we've all done this. We've stayed at a hotel and it's just a, uh, it's like being in a jail cell. It's, it's, it, it's a, a basic room. There's nothing special. It just feels like stuff's off the shelf. And then I've stayed at like boutique uh, hotels, like, you know, the, there's a small chain Indigo hotels. I don't know if you've heard of mm-hmm. them uh, uh-huh. where, where they really put some thought into designing the room uh, and making it feel like there's separate spaces within, you know, the overall space uh, that's allocated for the, for the room. And uh, you know, to me, it seems that, a lot of these companies are starting to maybe they're taking baby steps, but they're they're starting to go and and explore better design. I mean, and you have to be seeing that with your clients, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, I think the one thing that hotels completely miss, completely miss the opportunity is room service. And, you know, room service has been the same since it's been forever. The guy comes up now, some room service spectacular in Europe where they bring silver, you know, it probably gets all stolen, but they bring the silver and they really do a big production. And room service is traditionally expensive. However, people now with crime or being in foreign cities or just being burned out, the room, you know, they assume, well, I'm in a big city. The room doesn't have to be any good. So let's just have the lobby be nice and give somebody a box and that's enough. Well, making the room service experience where you go, you know what? I'm too tired. I've been in meetings all day long. I just want to watch the game. I think that's a huge opportunity for not necessarily even themed, but really wonderful experiences in your room. Why yeah. does the room have to feel like a jail cell? Well, real estate values has something to do with it, but yeah. um, a lot of us take our shoes off because we have to answer a million emails on another time zone. You have to sit there at the desk, you know? Yeah. No, I listen. I, I, I find it all very fascinating, uh, Eddie. And, and I have to tell you, I could sit here and talk with you for the next three or four hours and start just keep peppering you with questions and, and asking about this, that, and the other thing. And I wish we had the time. But what I will say, and I always say this to our guests, we're going to have you back. And we're going to we're going to just talk about like one thing. Uh, I don't know what that I don't know what that's going to be, but we're going to talk about just one aspect of uh, of what you do and sort of pick things apart. Now, you did tell me a story and I don't know if you want to repeat it. And maybe you do. Yeah, you did tell me a story when we met down at the Hojo's uh, about the um, uh, the Star Wars hotel experience. Well, I haven't been on the Star Wars hotel experience myself, so I don't want to opine on it until I actually. Do. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it alone then because we were talking about that. And you were you were relaying uh, a uh, comment that somebody had made who stayed uh, at it. I don't know if you remember right. that. Well, I, yeah. I think let's let the viewers yes. watch the videos. Uh-huh. And I think I think um, there have been some good online sources that have stayed more than once. I think it's important to try that because it's and frankly, I think the biggest problem is it was mismarketed, you know, as all about the cost of the room and not what you do there. Right. 
think people would figure that out, but hopefully we'll see what we'll see what that is. The star, yeah, the, I, I'm a big fan of the galactic, you know, um, star cruiser idea. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a fan of that necessarily of that hotel just yet. Cause I haven't been there, but uh, I, I have to hold my judgment back. Okay. We'll yeah. see. All right. Well, well that's, I do love we're... interactive theater. I guess I, I did secret cinema in London and that was a fantastic evening out and that was 300 bucks. Not yeah. 6,000. So yeah, but you know, experience live interaction that are really exciting. I, I do feel like, you know, if you're going to have an experience, you have to, cons- you, you're going to have to pay something for it. What that is, yeah. is going to, you know, I mean, it could be extreme or it could be, you know, fairly reasonable. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And so yes, with any new ride, I'm always careful about that because if, unless I've gone on it and experienced yeah. it and just sit and watching a YouTube video, got to be a little bit uh, yeah. cautious. Yeah. All right. You know, but this Eddie, is wonderful. Thank you so much. And it, it, it was fantastic having you on. We're going to put the links to your, yes, our, our audience has been enamored. They were so quiet during the interview ah. that now they're going wild, you know, uh, but we are going to put the links uh, to your websites uh, into the show sure. notes. Uh, so people can check out some of the really fantastic and cool things that you've been working on uh, since you left uh, Disney Imagineering. And I can't tell you how much of a thrill it's been uh, to just uh, be able to chat with you for the past hour about all of this fantastic stuff and uh, and really just inspiring. It's really inspiring to me to, to hear you talk about, uh, you know, experiential immersive design. Uh, it's something that, you know, the our listeners love this kind of stuff because they love the parks. They go to the theme parks and they love these kinds of attractions. And, and for you to be taking that out into the world is just magnificent. Well, I just, you know, I guess people say, why is Disneyland Paris, you know, an interesting park? And I said, well, it was designed by fans for fans. And so I feel like, you know, you got to be a believer to go out and do this stuff. And I have to be moved by the environment myself. I, everything I work on, I have a playlist for, I mean, I'm listening to the music. The door is closed. I'm channeling like a method actor, anything I work on, I become, you know, whatever, whatever it is I try to work on. So I want, I want every guest to feel that. So the fact that Disneyland Paris is still there after 30 years, um, I think is a tribute to all the designers and the cast and the guests that have supported something with no new rides because the immersion had to carry that part for all that time. So anyway, thank you, David. Always a pleasure and appreciate uh, your insightful questions. Well, thanks for that Monsanto book. I want to see that. You you and I, by the way, you and I are going to talk about uh, that Monsanto house of the future book. I'm going to be in touch with you. I promise. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, thank you, Eddie, for being on the show and we will talk to you again soon. Bravo. And from Sky Ranch one to everyone, have a safe, safe life. Your attention, please. (laughs) Now loading on track number one. For a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney.
absolutely fascinating story with Eddie. Isn't he a cool guy? And he's he's just he's such a such a cool dude. And I I just thoroughly enjoyed talking with him. And I'm going to get together with him again, you know, because I'm in the midst of doing this House of the Future book, and I I want to talk to him more about design and 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 further uh, interview him uh, from a design standpoint. Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, so good at what he does. If you're interested in what uh, Dave is doing, we'll definitely put links in the show notes so you can follow him and his illustrious company and all the stuff that he's involved in. Just fascinating. I, I look forward to having him back on the show well that said folks it is wrapping we're wrapping up (laughs) that said we're wrapping up yet another show and we'd like to thank you for listening don't forget to like share and subscribe to our show all the socials are there for you to follow quick reminder that you can register to win that book it's a pinned comment on our facebook uh, page claude coates book signed by alan coates and of course our very own dave bossert and this is an award-winning book it is so chock full of information it's like the perfect gift for anyone who is that disney parks fan especially uh if you're fans of imagineering etc so definitely must have for that um dave uh i'll leave you with the final word well as always al john peace and love to our audience out there go out have a fantastic week we appreciate you listening to the show and we will see you back here next week right here on the skull rock podcast skull rock podcast is made possible by listeners like you we'd like to thank our producers Lindsay scoffee spencer wright and joshua volker you can support Skull Rock Podcast by visiting our homepage, anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast, and click the support button. Become a producer today with your monthly donation and help sustain future episodes. And thank you for supporting Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com.